morning again to you. So here's we celebrate this MLK Day. I always think that, uh, or always feel that uh, Martin Luther King Day is kind of a, uh, a, four-way, a foray or a, pre, a precursor to Black History Month, you know, because that's what's coming up next. And of course, as many of you know or may not know that um, during Black History Month, uh, sometimes we can be notorious as a, uh, a ministry here for sharing spirituals because you know, they're so beautiful and you know I always want to look for moments to share um, beyond our regular Sunday worship these special gifts with the congregation and so we want to sing a spiritual for you this morning we've invited the, the guys in the band to sing along too because they are singers that's right yeah yeah I like to joke and say we have to give Tim White a mic once in a while otherwise he'll revolt that'll be it he won't sing anymore and so and so it's just simply the song that says, Fix Me, Jesus. How many of us really need fixing by the Holy Spirit? That's right. That's every, every hand should have went up in this place. I think it's Hosea 6.1 and it says, uh, Help me, Lord, to return unto you to fix me. Or Psalms 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew in me a right spirit. Fix me, Jesus. Fix me. Fix me, Jesus. 
fix me for my journey
can I have you guys continue to sing that as I read scripture? Go, go, go. Hear the words of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 58, verse 6. Is not this the kind of fasting that I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry? And to provide the poor wanderer with shelter. And when you see the naked, to clothe them. And to not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Let me read that again. Is not this the kind of fasting that I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter and when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh flesh and blood Flesh and blood is a synonym for all the people that Isaiah just mentioned. The oppressed, the hungry, the poor wonder, and the naked. And flesh and blood in Hebrew literally means blood relatives or as we think of, family. And you're talking about a culture in which family is everything to you. There's no identity apart from family. There's no future apart from family. There's no hope apart from family. And the prophet Isaiah has the audacity to say that the oppressed, the hungry, the stranger, and the naked, they are your family. That person is as much your flesh and blood as if you were related to them by blood. There is an interconnectedness and an interwovenness that you have with them, that your culture, that your society, that your country, that your family of origin, that sin has blinded you to. One time, Jesus is asked, who is my neighbor? Who am I responsible for? And the answer of Jesus was clear and straightforward. He says, your neighbor is anybody in need. That is who you are responsible for. To the question, am I my brother's keeper? The emphatic answer of scripture is yes, you are your brother's keeper. The undocumented neighbor is your flesh and blood. The unjustly criminalized and incarcerated neighbor is your flesh and blood. The economically crushed neighbor is your flesh and blood. The Muslim neighbor is your flesh and blood. The sexually assaulted neighbor is your flesh and blood. The unborn neighbor is your flesh and blood. This is the idea that was fundamental 
that brought Dr. King to Memphis in April 1968. Despite mounting pressures, including credible signs against his life. Church, we forget that at the time Dr. King was alive, he wasn't just beloved, he was also hated by many. Despite credible threats against his life, Dr. King refused to ignore the plight of the 1,300 mostly black sanitation workers in Memphis who were on strike. Their working conditions were so dehumanizing that their rallying cry was, I too am a man. And most well-to-do black, uh, white folks didn't dare risk their reputation to help a bunch of poor black garbage men. But King explained to them that they weren't just garbage men. They're your brothers. They are your flesh and blood. And he was calling on the white community and the community at large to intervene on their behalf, just as you would for your own family member. Some of you might not be aware that this speech in which I'm a right to read a portion is probably the last speech or sermon that he gave before he was assassinated the very next day. In it, he says, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny, because whatever affects one directly affects all of us indirectly. And then he said this, be concerned about your brother. You may not be on strike, but either we go up together or we go down together. Let us develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. Today we do remember and celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. But I want to be clear, church, we don't just want to celebrate a man. We want to celebrate the God who gave life and breath to this servant and ultimately deposit the powerful hopes and dreams that reverberate today. And when you read Dr. King's writings and listen to his sermons, you realize that Dr. King was driven by a vision of, listen, biblical justice. See, it's hard to explain justice to an American because when an American hears the word justice, they immediately think individual rights. And biblical justice has very little to do with individual rights. Can I get an amen? Behind biblical concept of justice is the word shalom, the Hebrew word for peace and wholeness and completeness. Once a rabbi was asked to explain justice and shalom, and he simply said, it's when nothing is missing and nothing is broken. And the rabbis illustrated shalom using a garment in which thousands of threads were intricately woven together. When all the threads are rightly related to each other, nothing is missing, nothing is broken. There's peace, wholeness, universal flourishing, spiritually, physically, socially, in every way. See, we underestimate the devastating effect of the fall. Because when men and women decided to come out from under the rule and reign of God, the result was nothing less than the unraveling of every part of creation. It's interesting that you and I live in a culture that says the fabric of our society is what? Unraveling. 
When our relationship with God unraveled, our relationship with each other unraveled, and all of creation unraveled. We live in a world where two billion people live on less than $2 a day. We live in a world where a 12-year-old girl in Cambodia has to sell her body just so that she could support her family. We live in a world where still parts of this world, people die from preventable diseases because they don't have access to common medicine. But it's not just abroad, is it? It's here. Church Zanetta remind us that just a couple of ways, a couple hours from where we live, there are people still without access to clean drinking water. How is that justice? We live in a city where if you're a child, just because you're born in the wrong zip code, you do not have access to quality education. We live in a city where because of the color of your skin or because you're poor, you don't have access to legal justice. We live in a city. We live in a city. We live in a city that's been physically separated by zoning laws to keep one race from another. We live in a country where 10% of households own 70% of all wealth. According to recent census data, the median net worth, we live in a country where black households earn $9,000 compared with $132,000 for white households. Our world is broken. And what is the gospel? Because two words in scripture that I love is the words, but God. But God. World is broken, but God. Ephesians 1.9. But God has now revealed to us a mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together. Under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. We remember today that the work of Christ in his death and resurrection wasn't to get people to heaven. The work was reconciliation. To put back together everything that fell apart because of sin. The end of history is not that we get whisked away to heaven Don't ask, how do we get as many people to heaven? Ask, how do we join God in bringing heaven down to earth? The end goal is reconciliation of all creation. Where everything under the authority of Christ that unraveled will be rewoven. And we remember today that until Christ returns to do this work, God has given the church the mission to participate with God in this reconciliation work. And Dr. King was convinced when you read his writings that the church was to play a vital role in this. That's why he was so harsh against the American church. He called on to church to wake up from their slumber because we don't just have a message. We are the message. The world is supposed to look at you and me and say, there is a glimpse of the future kingdom to come where God is going to heal all things because a group of people are living it. We have been reconciled to be reconcilers. So our church says at the core of our mission is racial reconciliation, which happens when 
people of different races commit to deep, long-term, intentional relationships based on repentance, forgiveness, justice, and love so that we can address, heal, and redeem the effects of personal, corporate, systemic, race-based sin. Here's how we will know that we are serious about this. It's not about you attending a weekly service with diverse people so that you could feel better about yourself. It's not about you posting something on Facebook. It's not something about you being able to regurgitate some podcast. It's certainly not something about you writing something or tweeting something so that you would seem woke. I will know that our church is serious about this. When I will go to the most important gatherings in your life and all the people there will not look like you. I will know that we are serious about this when you ask me to officiate your wedding and I go to officiate wedding and your wedding party does not look just like you. I will know that we are serious about this when in a few weeks we dedicate babies and the people that you invite up to join you in those significant moments will not look just like you. I will know that you are serious about this if and when the Lord calls you home and we show up to celebrate your life and death, the people there that will acknowledge that you have influenced them deeply will not look just like you. Why is this important? Because the goal is justice. But working for justice without relationships turns people into projects. Because when you care about the people, you care about the situations that they're in. Do not tell me that you love me when you do not care about the pol policies that affect me. Why is injustice called a yoke? Because describing people under oppressive weight of unjust structures and systems, it is not enough to do charity work. The call of scripture is go and change the school system. Go and change the criminal justice system. Go and change the economic system. Go and change the political system so that the legal system works for everyone, so that the streets are safe regardless of your zip code, so that every child gets a quality education regardless of where they live, so that people in Flint, Michigan have access to clean drinking water, so that millions of people don't die from access to, 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 to diseases, so that two billion people don't live on $2 a day, so that young girls don't have to sell their bodies to support their families. I end. With Dr. King, the end, he says, is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that could transform opponents into friends. It is this type of understanding, goodwill, that will transform the deep gloom of the old age into the exuberant gladness of the new age. It is this love which will bring about miracles in the hearts of men and women. I'm going to invite three of my brothers and sisters to read three excerpts from three of Dr. King's most well-known sermons. After they read, artists in our church who have been meditating and reflecting on what this day means will come up and lead us in actually a tangible physical activity that will enable us to think deeply about the significance of what this means. And our call to justice. 
Open your ears. Open your hearts. And may the Spirit of God speak. Okay, great. This morning I will be sharing a speech Dr. King preached on March 31st, 1968. It is titled, Remaining Awake Through a Great Revolution. The text for the morning is found in the book of Revelation, in the 16th chapter. Behold, I make all things new. Former things are passed away. I am sure that most of you have read the arresting little story from the pen of Washington Irving entitled Rip Van Winkle. The one thing that we usually remember about the story is that Rip Van Winkle slept 20 years. But there is another point in that little story that is almost completely overlooked. It was the sign in the end. When Rip Van Winkle went up into the mountain, the sign had a picture of King George III of England. When he came down 20 years later, the sign had a picture of George Washington, the first president of the United States. And this reveals to us that the most striking thing about the story of Rip Van Winkle is not merely that Rip slept 20 years, but that he slept through a revolution. While he was peacefully snoring up in the mountain, a revolution was taking place that at points would change the course of history. And Rip knew nothing about it. He was asleep. Yes, he slept through a revolution. And one of the great liabilities of life is that all too many people find themselves living among a great period of social change, and yet they fail to develop the new attitudes and the new mental responses that the new situation demands. They end up sleeping through a revolution. A great revolution is taking place in the world today. A triple revolution. Technological revolution. A revolution in weaponry. A human rights revolution. Yes, we are in a period where changes are taking place. And there is still the voice crying, Behold, I make all things new. Former things are passed away. Now when energy, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm gonna place the mic so I don't be too loud. Now whenever anything new comes into history, it brings with it new challenges and new opportunities. And I would like to deal with these challenges that we face today as a result of this triple revolution that is taking place today. First, we are challenged to develop a world perspective. No individual can live alone. No nation can live alone. And anyone who feels that he can live alone is sleeping through a revolution. Mm -hmm. Through our scientific and technological genius, we have made of this world a neighborhood. And yet, we have not had the ethical commitment to make it a brotherhood. But somehow, and in some way, we have got to do this. 
We are tied together in a single garment of destiny, caught in an inescapable moment of mutuality. And whatever affects one, affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am who I ought to be. Secondly, we are challenged to eradicate the last vestiges of racial injustice from our nation. I must say this morning that racial injustice is still the black man's burden and the white man's shame. It is an unhappy truth that racism is a way of life for the vast majority of white Americans. Spoken and unspoken acknowledged and denied, subtle and sometimes not so subtle. The disease of racism permeates and poisons a whole body politic. Something must be done. Everyone must share in the guilt as individuals and institutions. The government must certainly share the guilt. Individuals must share the guilt, even the church must share the guilt. We must face the sad fact that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, we stand to sing. In Christ, there is no east or west. While we stand in the most segregated hour of America. Now, there are those who often sincerely say to the Negro and his allies in the white community, why don't you slow up? Stop pushing things so fast. Only time can solve the problem. And if you will just be nice and patient and continue to pray, in a hundred or two hundred years, the problem will work itself out. Somewhere we must come to see that human progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and the persistent work of dedicated individuals who are willing to be co-workers with God. Without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the primitive forces of social stagnation. So we must help time and realize that the time is always ripe to do right. Now there is another myth that still goes around and it is an over-reliance on the bootstrap philosophy. But they never stop to realize that no other ethnic group has been a slave on American soil. They never stopped to realize that the nation made the black man's color a stigma. They never stopped to realize that the debt they owe a people who were kept in slavery 244 years. In 1863, the Negro was told that he was free as a result of the Emancipation Proclamation. But he was not given any land to make that freedom meaningful. And the irony of it all is that at the same time, the nation failed to do anything for the black man. Congress was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But not only did it give the land, it built land-grant colleges to teach them how to farm. Not only that, 
It provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. Not only that, it provided low interest rates so they could mechanize their farms. Thousands of these persons are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies every year not to farm. These are so often the very people who tell Negroes they must lift themselves up by their bootstraps. There's another thing closely related to racism that I would like to mention as another challenge. We are challenged to rid our nation of the world of poverty. Two-thirds of the people of the world go to bed hungry tonight. They are ill-housed, ill-nourished, shabbily clad. I've seen it in Latin America. I've seen it in Africa. I've seen it in Asia. Not only do we see poverty abroad, but in our own nation. There are 40 million people who are poverty-stricken. I have seen them in the ghettos of the North and the rural areas of the South. And the tragedy is, so often these 40 million people are invisible because America is so affluent, so rich, because our expressways carry us from the ghetto, we don't see the poor. America is the richest nation in the world, and nothing's wrong with that. But this is America's opportunity to help bridge the gulf between the haves and the have-nots. The question is whether America will do it. There's nothing new about poverty. What is new is that we now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. The real question is whether we have the will. We are coming to Washington in a poor people's campaign. We are coming to demand that the government address itself to the problem of poverty. We are coming to ask America to be true to the promissory note that it signed years ago. And we are coming to engage in a dramatic, nonviolent action to make the invisible visible. We do it this way because a nation doesn't move around questions of gen genuine equality for poor and black people until it is confronted massively, dramatically, in terms of direct action. I wanna say another challenge that we face is simply that we must find an alternative to war and bloodshed. Anyone who feels and there are still a lot of people who feel this way, that war can solve the problem of social problems facing mankind is sleeping through a revolution. I am convinced that it is one of the most unjust wars that has ever been fought in the history of the world. Our involvement in the war in Vietnam has torn up the Geneva Accord. It has strengthened the military-industrial complex. It has strengthened the forces of reaction in our nation. Not only that, it has put us in a position of appearing to the world as an arrogant nation. And here we are, 10,000 miles away from home, fighting for the so-called freedom of the Vietnamese people when we have not even put our own house in order. We have difficult days ahead. Yes, in the struggle for justice and peace, but I will not yield to a politic of despair. We shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice.
Thank God for John, who centuries ago out on a lonely, obscure land called Patmos caught vision of a new Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God, who heard a voice saying, Behold, I make all things new. Former things have passed away. God grant that we will be participants in this newness and, max and magnificent development. If we will but do it, we will bring about a new day of justice, of brotherhood, of peace. This sermon This sermon was preached by Dr. King on July 1st, 1963. It is titled, Love in Action. There are probably no words in all the New Testament that express more clearly and solemnly than the magnanimity of Jesus' spirit than that sublime utterance from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here we see love at its best. First, it is a marvelous expression of Jesus' ability to match words with actions. One of the great tragedies of life is that men seldom bridge the gulf between practice and profession, between doing and saying. There is that persistent schizophrenia which leaves so many of us tragically divided against ourselves. On one hand, we proudly profess certain sublime and noble principles but on the other hand, we sadly practice the very antithesis of those principles. How often are our lives characterized by a high blood pressure of creeds and anemia of deeds? We talk eloquently about our commitment to the principles of Christianity, and yet we live our lives saturated with the practices of paganism. We proudly profess our devotion to the democracy, and yet we sadly practice the very opposite of the democratic creed. We talk passionately about peace, and yet at the same time, we assiduously prepare for war. We make our fervent pleas for the high road of justice, and yet we tread unflinchingly the low road of injustice. This strange dichotomy, this gulf between the ought and is, stands out as a long tragic story of man's earthly pilgrimage. But when we turn to the life of Jesus, we find the, golf, the gulf bridged, Never in all history have we found a more sublime example of the consistency of word and deed. During his ministry around Galilee, Jesus had talked passionately about forgiveness. He had admonished his followers to love their enemies and pray for them that despitefully used them. This doctrine had fallen upon the ears of many of his hearers like strange music from a foreign land. They had been taught to love their friends and hate their enemies. Their lives have been conditioned to seek redress in the time-honored technique of retaliation. And yet Jesus continued to teach that them that not only through a creative love for their enemies could they be children of their Father in heaven. Jesus eloquently affirmed from the cross a higher law. He knew that the old eye-for-an-eye eye philosophy would end up leaving everyone blind. He did not seek to come over, overcome evil with evil. He overcame evil with good. Although crucified by hate, 
he responded with a radical love. There's a second lesson that comes from Jesus' prayer on the cross. is an expression of Jesus' awareness of man's intellectual and spiritual blindness. They know not what they do, said Jesus. Blindness was the trouble. We must recognize that Jesus was nailed to the cross not simply by sin, but by blindness. Those who cried crucify him were not bad men, but blind men. The jeering mob that lined the roadside, which ultimately led to the cross, was not comprised of evil people, but of blind people. They knew not what they did. What a tragedy. As a chief moral guardian of the community, the church must implore men to be good and well-intended. It must extol the virtues of kind-heartedness and conscientiousness. But somewhere along the way, it must remind men that goodness and conscientiousness without intelligence may be the brutal forces that will lead to shameful crucifixions. The church must never tire of reminding men that they have a moral responsibility to intelligence. We must admit that the church has often overlooked this moral demand for enlightenment. At times it has talked as if ignorance is a virtue and intelligence a crime. Through its obscuritism, closed-mindedness, and obstinacy to new truth, the church has often unconsciously encouraged its worshipers to look askance upon intelligence. But if we are to call ourselves Christians, we had better avoid intellectual and moral blindness. Throughout the New Testament, we are reminded of the need for enlightenment. We are commanded to love God not only with our hearts and souls, but also with our minds. Jesus bids his disciples not only to be as harmless as doves, but also as wise as serpents. Over and over again, the Bible constantly reminds us of the danger of zeal without knowledge and sincerity without intelligence. We have a mandate not only to conquer sin, but to conquer ignorance. Modern man is presently having a rendezvous with chaos not merely because of human badness, but also because of human stupidity. They know not what they do, said Jesus. Blindness was their besetting trouble. Unlike physical blindness that is inflicted upon individuals as a result of natural forces outside their control, intellectual moral blindness is an ill which man inflicts upon himself by his tragic misuse of freedom and failure to use his own mind to its fullest capacity. There is plenty information if we consider it as serious a moral obligation to be intelligent as to be sincere. I know many people of limited formal training who have amazing intelligence and foresight. The call for intelligence is a call for open-mindedness, sound judgment, and love for truth. To rise above the stagnation of closed-mindedness and paralysis of gullibility. No one need to be a profound scholar to be open-minded or a keen academician to engage and search for truth. So Jesus was right about these men who crucified him. They knew not what they did. They were inflicted with a terrible blindness. Let us leave with a true picture of the cross. 
Every time I look at the cross, I'm reminded of the greatness of God and the redemptive power of Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of the beauty of sacrificial love and the majesty of unswerving devotion to truth. But somehow, I can never turn my eyes from that cross without realizing it symbolizes a strange mixture of greatness and smallness, of good and evil. As I behold that uplifted cross, I'm not only reminded of the unlimited power of God, but also of the sordid weakness of man. I not only think of the glory of the divine, but of the tang of the human. I'm reminded not only of Christ at his best, but also of man at his worst. We must continue to see the cross as a magnificent symbol of love conquering hate and light overcoming darkness. But in the midst of this glowing affirmation, let us not never forget that our Lord and Master was nailed to the cross because of human blindness. Those who crucified him knew not what they did. This is an excerpt from a sermon preached at Temple Israel of Hollywood. It was preached on February 26, 1965. Keep moving from this mountain. This one is a little bit longer. Okay. I would like to have you think with me from the subject, keep moving from this mountain. I would like to take your minds back many centuries into an experience so significantly recorded in scripture. The children of Israel had been reduced into the bondage of physical slavery. Throughout slavery, they were things to be used, not persons to be respected. Throughout slavery, they were trampled over by the iron feet of oppression, exploited economically, dominated politically, and humiliated on every hand. But then God sent Moses to lead the children of Israel from the dark, difficult period of Egypt slavery into a bright and better day. Moses stood in Pharaoh's court and cried out, let my people go. Pharaoh with a hardened heart refused over and over again. But then came that glad day when the Red Sea opened and God's children were able to leave the darkness of Egypt and move on to the other side. But as soon as they got out of Egypt, they discovered that before they could get to the promised land, there was a difficult, trying wilderness ahead. They had to realize that before they could get to the promised land, they had to face gigantic mountains and prodigious hilltops. And so, as a result of this realization, three groups of people emerged. One group said, we would rather go back to Egypt. They preferred the flesh pots of Egypt to the challenges of the promised land. A second group abhorred the idea of going back to Egypt, and yet they abhorred the idea of facing the difficulties of moving ahead to the promised land, and they somehow wanted to remain stationary and choose the line of least resistance. There was a third group, probably influenced by Caleb and Joshua, 
who had gone over to spy a bit and who admitted that there were giants in the land, but who said, we can possess the land. This group said that we will go on in spite of that we will not allow anything to stop us, that we will move on amid the difficulties, amid the trials, and amid the tribulations. Now certainly, one could almost preach a sermon from either of these groups. I want to deal mainly with the second group, those individuals that chose the line of least resistance, those individuals who didn't want to go back to Egypt, but who did not quite have the strength to move on to the promised land. There are probably uh, the people who, excuse me, these are probably the people who wanted to remain stationary. These are the people who probably wanted to stop at a particular point and remain right there in the wilderness. God speaks through Moses to these people. The first chapter of Deuteronomy said, you have been in this mountain long enough. Turn and take your journey and go to the Mount of the Amorites. In other words, God was saying through Moses, you must not allow yourself to get bogged down with unattained goals. You must not allow yourself to get caught up in impeding mountains. Whenever God speaks, he says, go forward. Whenever God speaks, he says, move on from mountains of stagnant complacency and deadening passivity. So this is the great challenge that stands before men. I would like to suggest some of the symbolic mountains that we have occupied long enough, but must leave if we are to move on to the promised land of justice, peace, and brotherhood. We've been in the mountain of racial injustice long enough. And now it is time for us to move on to that great and noble realm of justice and brotherhood. That is the great struggle taking place in our nation today. It is a struggle to save the soul of our nation, for no nation can rise to its full moral maturity so long as it subjects a segment of its citizenry on the basis of race or color. And somehow we must come to see more than ever before that racial injustice is a cancer in the body of politic which must be removed before our moral health can be realized. Racial segregation must be seen for what it is, and that is an evil system, a new form of slavery covered up with certain niceties of complexity. Segregation is wrong, whether it is in public schools, whether it is in housing, whether it is in recreational facilities, in any area of life. It is an evil which we must work to get rid of with all the determination and all of the zeal that we can muster. Segregation is evil because it relegates persons to the status of things. There is another mountain that we've been in long enough. It is a mountain of violence and hatred. I believe that violence cannot solve the problems of the world. Violence is impractical and immoral. This is why I've tried in my little way to teach in our struggle for racial justice that we cannot make the great moral contribution to our nation that we should make. And we cannot win the battle for justice if we stoop to the point of using violence in our struggle. We've been in the war, the mountain of war, the mountain of violence, the mountain of hatred long enough. It is necessary to move on now and only by moving out of this mountain 
can we move to the promised land of justice, brotherhood, and the kingdom of God. We must never allow ourselves to become satisfied with unattained goals. We must maintain a divine discontent. There are certain technical words within every academic discipline which soon become stereotypes and cliches. Modern psychology has a word that is probably used more than any other word in psychology. It is the word maladjusted. Certainly we all want to live the well-adjusted life in order to avoid neurotic and schizophrenic personalities. But I must honestly say to you that there are some things in our world, some things in our nation to which I am proud to be maladjusted, to which I call upon all men of goodwill to be maladjusted until the good society is realized. I say to you that I never intend to adjust myself to segregation and discrimination. I never intend to become adjusted to bigotry. I never intend to adjust myself to economic conditions that take necessities from the many to give luxuries to the few. I never intend to adjust myself to madness of militarism and self-defeating effects of physical violence. I say to you that I am absolutely convinced that maybe the world is in need for the formation of a new organization, the International Association for the Advancement of Creative Maladjustment. Men and women who will be maladjusted as the prophet Amos, who in the midst of the injustices of his day would cry out in words that echo across the centuries, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. As maladjusted as Abraham Lincoln, who had the vision to see that this nation could survive half slave, could not survive, excuse me, half slave and half free. As maladjusted as Thomas Jefferson, who in the midst of an age amazingly adjusted to slavery, would etch across the pages of history words lifted to cosmic proportions. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As maladjusted as Jesus of Nazareth, that said to the men and women of his day, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, pray for them that despitefully use you. And through such maladjustment, we will be able to emerge from the bleak and desolate midnight of man's inhumanity to man into the bright glittering daybreak of freedom and justice. Oh, I know that there are still dark and difficult days ahead. Before we get there, some, of, some more of us will have to get scarred up a bit. Before we reach that majestic land, some more will be called bad names. Before we get there, some more will have to be thrown into crowded, frustrating, and depressing jail cells. Before we get there, maybe somebody else, like a Medgar Evers, will have to face physical death. But if physical death is the price that, must, that some must pay to free their children and their white brothers from a permanent death of the spirit, then nothing can be more redemptive. We shall overcome... Deep in my heart, I believe we shall overcome. We shall overcome 
because no lie can live forever. We shall overcome because truth crushed to earth will rise again. And with this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair, a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to speed up that day. And finally, in the words of prophecy, every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together.